The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What happened to you? Pulled a muscle in my coos in boot camp. All right, happy you asked. So, what brings you by, Celia? I know that you're depressed. I'm here for you. Me? I am here to pull you out of it. I'm not depressed. Your business burned down. Kids, busy with lives of their own. Brother-in-law feeds off of you like a parasite. You haven't been late in God knows how long. And you haven't been to PTA in over a month. What are you doing? I'm fine, Celia. And what do you do all day? Things. What things? Okay, you didn't hobble over here with your achy vagina just to chase my blues away. What do you want? Please work on my campaign. Please. Doug is a turd. Pam is an idiot. You just keep me company. I don't even care who you vote for. I have a broken crotch. You need to get out of the house. It's a win-win. Please. I... Just say yes. You know, if you don't, I'll never stop harassing you. Fine. Fine. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 22nd, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, which is completely devoted to the current provincial election going on in Ontario. We're going to be talking about voters and wasting their votes near the end of the show. And throughout the show, you will be hearing samples of all the area candidates uh, in London, in the four area ridings, as sampled from some of the Rogers Cablecast debates, which have already played once all the way through. Saw them all, picked four clips, and uh, you'll hear a sampling of all them throughout the show. We're going to be ta- touching on a lot of other issues related to the election as well. And I understand, Robert, you want to start off with... What are you calling it? Lies, damn lies, and socialists? Lies, damn <laughs> lies, and socialists, yeah. You've all heard of the phrase lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, this is all about the lies that our socialists tell us. And I think it may have started off a long time ago, actually. I didn't write down the date, but I think we're looking into the 16th century when Henry IV of France said, Quote, I will make sure that no peasant in my realm will lack the means to have a chicken in the pot on Sunday, unquote. Mm-hmm. So that goes back, what, 400 years, when uh, essentially a politician, uh, Henry IV of France, because Henry IV of France, while royalty, still had to uh, garner the um, love of the public. So, I mean, he wasn't running for an election. He was trying to garner that favor of the masses, as any politician would. He ended up surviving 12 out of the 13 assassination attempts on his life. What happened on the 13th? (laughs) (laughs) Guess. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe somebody didn't have their chicken. (laughs) It wasn't an attempt anymore, was it? You wouldn't call that one an attempt. Oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe I I, I wrote it that wrong. Yeah, it was an attempt, a successful attempt. (laughs) But perhaps not the first politician uh, to to promise, but one that has often been mimicked by politicians of every stripe since Henry IV of France. Herbert Hoover, he promised in 1928, quote, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. 
something that, of course, yeah. Henry the Fourth. If there were cars, I'm sure he probably would have promised too. <laughs> Um, he won the election, and, uh, Herbert Hoover, over that promise. The fact that not every American ended up with a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage was sort of lost on the American electorate when only two years later saw the start of the Great Depression. <laughs> when almost well, nobody had a chicken in every pot or a car in every garage. So so much for that promise of Herbert Hoover. Well, another another promise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, the one I want to distinguish is, is a promise, when does a promise become a, an outright lie? That's a good question. Yeah. Was, was Hoover making a promise he knew he couldn't keep, or did he just lie, outright lie to get elected? Well, since he had no evidence whatsoever to suggest that every American would be wealthy enough to have an automobile, it could only be a lie. Well, it could be a wish, couldn't it? He didn't, he didn't say that. Oh. Well. You know, he promised a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That didn't happen. As a matter of fact, he preceded the worst um, economic hist- uh, uh, downturn mm-hmm. in American history. So, now, I'm, I'm sure he could not have foreseen the downfall in the market, but I'm also quite positive he could not confidently say that every American will have a car in every garage. You know, maybe it's just a, such a big, obvious unfulfillable promise that people wouldn't take it as an outright lie, but I don't know. I'm thinking maybe it was just a lie. Flash forward to Dalton McGinty, speaking of liars. In the election of 2003, (laughs) 2007, and 2011, we can recall the lies of Dalton McGinty. Now, you don't usually hear this, especially in the public, about lying, but the fact is that they're documented lies by McGinty. Now, if you go back to those elections, 3, 7, and 11, Ernie Eves, Howard Hampton, Dalton McGinty, John Tory, and Andrea Horwath, those were the people around those elections. Of course, they called them promises, but in truth, they were lies. When McGinty was first elected in 2003, there was such, there was a running tally kept during his first years in office of all the promises, quote, not kept. And what is a lie but a deliberate intention not to keep her promise? You know, if you Google the words Dalton McGinty, in quotes, so that you're, you're, you're just looking at that one man, and the word lies, over 38,000 results are shown. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> one page details over 30 promises McGinty made which he reneged on. Yet, with all this evidence of what is becoming a political meme, lies like a liberal, Ontarians re-elected McGinty and his liberals again in 2007, and yet again in 2011. Honestly, honesty, it seems, is either completely irrelevant to electability, or a complete lack of honesty is absolutely essential to getting elected as Dalton McGinty has demonstrated. How many times have we been told in the past that we should just lie to people to get elected oh, and yes. then do what we want to do afterwards? Now you're referring to when, when we run as candidates yeah. or when Freedom Party when, runs as candidates. Even yeah. as, uh, as a trustee or anything you yep. used to run as. People used people to say, why, think, why well, don't you that's just the lie? Done. Yeah. Why don't you just promise something, you know, give the people what they want during the campaign, and then you know you can't deliver, but you'll get elected, and that's when you can actually make a difference. And, and, you know, of course, you and I are honest people. We don't Maybe do that. that speaks to the type of people that vote and the type of people that don't. Yes. And in so order to get elected, you have to appeal to that certain fragment. 
you know, um, Salim Mansour just recently brought out that 51% of the people in the last election did not vote. So maybe they're just being so honest with themselves that, hey, I can't vote for any of them. They're just so dishonest. And, of course, people like you and I are painted with that same brush because people aren't aware of us. And, and you Well, know, that's understandable. Yeah, yeah, that is understandable. Now, of course, McGinty is enjoying his political retirement in the... Uh, uh, this provincial election of 2014, you'll find no difference of that with Hoover's in 28 or McGinty's in 2003, except for, I think, in one respect, the magnitude of the lies. Enter Tim Hudak and Andrea Horwath, election 2014. This election, we see Mr. Hudak promising to cut 100,000 civil service jobs and, in a province with 550,000 unemployed, create a million jobs over eight years for 550 unemployed people. I said last week that that was because you really had to work two jobs to pay for all the nonsense that these people are taxing to death with. Ms. Horwath, not to be outdone in the magnitude of her promises, has promised to cut hospital wait times in half. Hospital wait times in half. Based on what evidence? Both politicians have obviously learned from McGinty if lying works, then the bigger the lie, the greater the chance of being elected. Here's another quote I'd like you to ponder. Quote, In the big lie, there's always a certain force of credibility, because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily, and thus the primitive simplicity of their minds they more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie. Since they themselves often tell small lies in their little matters, but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods, it would never come into their heads to fabricate colossal untruths, and they would not believe that others could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. Even though the facts which prove this to be to be so... Uh, may be brought clearly to their minds, they will still doubt and waver and will continue to think that there may be some other explanation. I'll leave it to the listener to guess who said this, but here's a hint. It was written in 1925 and translated from the original German. The big lie seems to be the ticket to Queen's Park, and the leaders of the three parties in the legislature have obviously gotten there by using the tactic of the big lie. Goebbels said, quote, The English follow the principle that when one lies, one should be big and stick to it. They keep up their lies, even at the risk of looking ridiculous. And ridiculous is exactly how Hudak and Horwath are looking. But not apparently to the media, the fourth estate, who, in the main, have failed to challenge them on such obvious lies, impossible promises to keep without any evidence to suggest that they can keep the promise, and in fact, against all evidence to suggest that they cannot keep those promises. Maybe they should be called the fourth mistake, not the, the fourth, fourth mistake. <laughs> the fourth because mistake. that's how it's looking. Because let's face it, the media is part of the electoral process. They all pick their sides. There's no objectivity in election coverage. There just isn't, and if you believe there is... I got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, you and I are very close to the media. In yeah. fact, you even started a newspaper of your own yeah. back in the day. Um, we meet with journalists uh, quite often. We know a lot of journalists. And um, 
we know the complicity that they 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 have to take responsibility for the mess that we are in not just the big three parties that have put us in this mess the uh, liberals and the bmpcs but their their voice out to the public mm-hmm. which is the fourth estate and uh, one of uh, one of our friends um, lloyd <laughs> yeah. said that uh, as far as radio and television media goes it's disposable media what you need is print media then it becomes part of the official record. It becomes history. Mm-hmm. You can go back 150 it's changing years. changing a bit with radio and TV, with the Internet, and being able True. to actually record things and save them, right? And save them, yeah. And that changes that parameter a little bit. But, but yeah. the principle is the same. But, you know, saving digital media from radio and television also relies on technology, and um, you can have corrupt files. And uh, that's a shame, actually, because I think things, uh, even though we're quite diligent in, in saving our history... Um, and I mean by that Freedom Party's history of the last 30 years, um, files become corrupt. Uh, VHS tapes oh, yeah. <laughs> become really bad to watch. Um, we've just recently digitized them all now, but hey, what happens if those files, with one little electron out of place, the file could be pooched? Well, that's why you want lots of backups. That's you why hard copies of things. Yeah, right? That's why we rely heavily on the print media, because this piece of paper in front of me, I can just put it in my attic and it'll be there, my house doesn't burn down, a hundred years from now, untouched, basically exactly the way it is right now. That's why we rely on the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to that. That's why we rely on the press, the media of the newspapers. In, 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 In London, we should look at the London Free Press and the Metro. You know, a lot of people rely on those as their only way of determining the lies it's a document of record too and yes. what's happened in the city obituaries are put in there notices legal legal notices that's what sort of qualifies them as a fourth estate you know but when you get people at the on the editorial boards of these new pa- newspapers and I'm just not just going to single out those two but um, you you name them um, they all have their political agendas they all skew the media not so much tell falsehoods but what they do is tell falsehoods by omission for example, saying that the only three candidates running in this riding are, and they just list the Liberal, NDP, and PC. All socialists, all the same party, basically. Mm-hmm. The closed loop, as Salim Mansour has identified them as. And uh, omitting the other candidates who may alter, uh, offer a better alternative. Well, there's a bigger strategy dealing with that, and I'm going to be talking about that in the second half of the program, oh, believe good. it or not. Ran into it last night. Yeah. Now, let's take the deception of Hudak's 100,000 job cuts. First one has to realize that these are jobs not people. The way that a politician cuts a job is by renaming it, such as Trudeau did back in the uh, wage and price control days. Janitors became custodians. See, I just eliminated every janitor's position. I simply renamed them. His promise of creating a million jobs is equally ridiculous. Again, the fourth estate has not challenged him on this. An honest journalist would have immediately questioned Hudak on the fact that there are only 550,000 unemployed in Ontario. He would have had then asked him how he was going to create these jobs, since the only sure way to create a, a million jobs is to hire a million people. So is Hudak suggesting that he's going to swell the ranks of the civil service by twice as many unemployed people in the province? Those are the questions the journalists aren't asking. And then we come to Andrea. Andrea Horwath's startling claim that she's going to cut hospital wait times by half. How? Where is her detailed analysis? How much will it cost? How many doctors, nurses, and ancillary staff will, have to, will she have to hire? How many new clinics and hospitals will she build? How much will it cost? Again, 
How much will taxes have to rise to meet such an outrageous and ridiculous claim? No response. In fact, the big lie re- requires no details and no evidence. The big lie relies solely on the politician's absolute assurance that the fourth estate, the press, will not ask any of these obvious questions. The lying politician relies on the ignorance and laziness of the media. It's almost essential for the big lie to work. Now, what follows are unedited excerpts from the uh, aforementioned Rogers Cablecast candidates' debates in the writings of London Fanshawe and London North Centre. So let's just listen to some socialists spin us a yarn, and then when we return, Bob and I will have Bob... Uh, Bob and I will have some comments to make on what uh, what you're about to hear. Okay, our next question is coming from Craig Gilbert at oh, at the London Community News. London hospitals have made headlines recently because of overcrowding. How would you address the crisis and healthcare in general? Okay, starting this time with Marcel. Marcel from the Liberals. Well, we've been uh, invested in uh, hospital funding. Uh, we have $260 million in home and community care, but specifically with hospitals, we have increased the funding 50% since uh, 2003. Uh, wait times are obviously a concern, um, and uh, it's something that everybody's interested in, and um, becoming more efficient in the delivery of health care uh, is a priority for us. Um, in 2015, all Ontarians will have uh, e-records uh, or electronic medical records, and, and that's one of the issues that, uh, that we're dealing with. Um, and wait times have actually decreased for medical procedures, um, and we're becoming more efficient uh, in the way that we deliver those services. But this is going to take a, a continuous work, uh, and we're going to continue working on improving the wait times in uh, emergency rooms. Thank you, Marcel. Chris Robson from the PC Party on uh, how do we improve the health care system? Well, number one, we can't keep going down the same path we're going down with uh, increasing our debt and deficit. Paramount importance is to, is to get the deficit in order, and we're the only party that's going to do that. And when we get the deficit in order, then we can address, along the line, we're also going to address the uh, health care issues. We need more uh, home care, chronic care. We're, we are going to increase the number of nurses. And these are all important for, uh, for what we want to do in health care. Okay, thank you, Chris. William Sorrell from the Green Party. So we already talked about capping CEO in healthcare, and if we start capping policies for CEOs, then we can reinvest that money in healthcare in order to hire nurses, in order to hire more medical staff, in order to treat the wait times at um, at hospitals. Okay. Thank you, William. Paul McKeever from the Freedom Party. The Ontario healthcare system and the hospital system used to be doing much better. In 1969, the uh, Ontario PCs imposed a ban on private uh, health insurance. They imposed a government monopoly on the provision of health care. They imposed the income tax so as to pay for it and now have imposed a number of other taxes because the cost of it keeps exploding. Well, why does it explode? It's not, it doesn't take a brain scientist. It explodes because when you don't have to pay a penny to walk into a hospital to get your itchy skin treated, there's a lot of demand for the service. So we need to have an end to the government monopoly. We need to open up the system to competition. We need competition to drop the prices, increase the supply, meet the demand. It's not brain science. It's basic economics. As to the budget being balanced, Tim Hudak, who we're hearing is going to balance the budget, also was promising simultaneously to spend $78 billion approximately on nuclear reactors, $50 billion on transit, $10 billion on severance packages for the 100,000 people he's going to lay off. That is not a credible way to balance a budget. Okay, Chris, your party's being called out quite clearly there, so we'll give you a chance to respond. Yeah, well, 
we do have a plan to balance the budget, and that, that is of paramount importance uh, to the province. Uh, you know, you can't keep going ahead. We're spending a million and a half dollars more an hour than we're bringing in, and that's, that's just not uh, feasible. Okay. Thank you, Chris. The question of improving our health care system to Teresa Armstrong from the NDP. Improving our health care system, there's definitely things that we can do. Um, you know, the emergency wait times are exorbitant. Uh, we did have that um, situation where people were lying on floors because they were waiting for beds. Um, we need to do better. And uh, one of the things we can do is um, investing in home care. A lot of seniors are, uh, you know, only choice to go get some help is to the emergency at hospitals. And if they can actually have health care, uh, home care delivered to their homes in a timely fashion, then maybe that could avoid that overflow. Um, so making a, a home care guarantee if a senior needs um, ass assistance, uh, they can get their home care that they need at home and help that emergency uh, timelines. As well as the CEO salaries that we talked about, we want to cap them at twice the premier salary. And that extra money should be put in the front lines when people walk into the hospitals in order to uh, receive timely um, medical attention. Okay, thank you, Teresa. Let's move along to our next question. This is coming from Mike Donachy at Metro News. Do you think it should be easier to remove municipal politicians who get caught up in scandals? This is a very relevant one here in London as well as in our neighboring Toronto. We're going to start this time with Nancy Branscombe for the PC party. Nancy? Thanks. This isn't part of our election platform, but my personal view is absolutely, uh, particularly London, we've had, uh, we've had a difficult uh, term this council because of so many distractions, and uh, I would be looking for something like that as a private member's bill if I were elected, because I think that they need to, there needs to be some kind of mechanism if there's some, uh, some serious problem that uh, somebody had to step down from the police services board but did not have to step down as a head of council. So I don't think that's, that's a match for what the citizens want. And it was very distracting and uh, left us unable to do a lot of the good work that the citizens had elected us to do. So while well, it's not a PC platform, it's certainly a personal one of mine. Thank you very much, Nancy. Next up, Deb Matthews for the Liberals. So I can tell you that I expect the highest ethical standards of everyone in public life, whether they're at the federal, provincial, or municipal level. And uh, I, uh, I, I just think that, that political leaders need to be held to a higher standard. Uh, our focus is very much on the economy and on creating jobs. I, I meet too many people, young people, who have done everything right. They've got a university education, they're ready to launch their career, and there isn't a job for them. When they know, they know that 100,000 jobs are being cut, uh, they know that's the youngest people are the ones who are going to be most impacted and for those who are looking for a job, their opportunities are just not going to be there. This election is about the economy. It's about do we slash and burn or do we continue to invest in more jobs so that there are more people paying taxes. All right. Thank you, Deb. Uh, a reminder, this question is about uh, municipal politicians and whether they should be, uh, we should be, have, uh, be able to remove them if they get caught up in scandal. So next to Celine Mansour from the Freedom Party. Well, I mean, the common, common people, the single mother working hard, wonder how they can meet their responsibility when the politicians are setting the example. Here we have a government of which 
Debbie, the deputy premier, the premier runs away and hides away, scrubs the hard disk, nobody is accountable, you know. We've had ministers resign, Debbie's ministry, the previous minister, David Kaplan, left with the e-health problem. We've had orange scandal, we have Caledonia, we have ongoing scandal, and our citizens are wondering, who are we sending to Queen's Park? Who are we sending to our city hall? We have to, I agree again with Debbie, it's about the economy, but we have to restore trust. Can we send the same people back to deal with the economy who we don't trust? Okay, Deb, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, sentence? I mean, Salim, really. The, the premier of this province, Kathleen Wynne, has done everything within her power to respond to the issues that were raised about the gas plants. And you know that she has appeared before committee, she has released documents, uh, she has done everything to make sure that the new, there are new rules in place and even the Privacy and Integrity Commissioner has said, the Integrity, Privacy and Information Commissioner has praised our Premier for the steps she has taken. So don't insult. Uh, okay, thanks Deb. Let's move <laughs> along to Judy Bryant with the question of uh, uh, holding our, our politicians accountable. Uh, absolutely, Christine, I believe we do, and I think we've had several cases across the province, actually, where there's been inappropriate behaviour by the leaders and, and even the, the mayors, as we know. It's, it isn't a comfortable position for the, for the councillors there. It's very distracting. It's very hard to conduct the work of the day-to-day -day people when you're constantly distracted by something that is actually tangential to what we actually were elected to do. And the people who are electing us to this coming election and in the next municipal election need to listen very carefully to what people to say, are saying to them to see if they can be trusted. Because if it's no trust at that level, then you will get what you uh, vote for. And that is what happens. But we also need to be able to pull back from the province, needs to be able to come in and step in when things are out of hand and fix it. Somehow we have to get the province and the municipality working together on how we run the levels of government. Thank you very much, Judy. Next is Kevin Labonte from the Green Party. Thank you, Michael. The short answer is yes. The Green Party of Ontario, it is official policy that we would enact recall legislation based on the legislation that exists in BC. What this entails is that a certain, a per, if a person wishes to have an elected official from a provincial or municipal level, they can go out and get registered and then have a survey and get in enough signatures. If they get reach a certain criteria of signatures, then that person is, has to step down and an immediate election is called. That person can still run, but their, their integrity has been called into question and they have to, to be accountable to the, the people of Ontario. Now, while it is true that this election is about the economy, it is also about leadership and it is about trust. A recall legislation builds an extra mechanism so that a person who gets elected on false promises or scandals come out afterwards can be held to account. We need accountability back in our government. Recall legislation that the Green Party of Ontario proposes will do that. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. You know what I, I, I take out of that, Bob, is the, uh, the, the, the difference between the three socialist parties, four if you include the Greens, because they're socialists too, and Salim and Paul McKeever, who basically always turn the, uh, to the trust issue and saying, why are we going to continue to trust your 
promises that you don't keep. And Especially since all of them cited the symptoms of their own policies as being the problems that we have to fix. Exactly. I just It blows me away. They're the ones who we put have, us in these problems. We have waiting lists. Well, hello, that was your system. Yeah. Yeah, but as a matter of fact, you've been in that at, the, at the Reagans for the last 10 years, and now you want to fix the problem that you created? There was one, one uh, statement there that really struck me as well from Deb Matthews, the Liberal candidate in the North Centre. Uh, possibly personally responsible with um, her party of destroying so many jobs and making this a have-not province under her watch. She said that we want to create more jobs so that more people can pay taxes. Yeah. Well, that's the first honest thing she said. I know. <laughs> that, is the, that is the truth of a parasite. And that's what I mean when I say that the liberals represent government. They don't represent labor and they don't represent business. That's the other two parties. All the socialist parties represent an interest. Yes. Right? And theirs is government. They'll do anything as long as it means more taxes and more power for them. They'll sit, they'll support anybody at it for anything. Yep. And that's basically all there is to them. Uh, you know, as far as uh, the other candidates debate, um, the whole recall idea and, you know, I- running the economy, uh, slash and burn versus this and that. These guys shouldn't even be in the economy. That's not their business. They should be governing, not running economics. And you have a, a Kathleen Wynne government that thinks that government and business and government and labor should be partnerships, when that's not the relationship at all. That's, that's out of a fairy tale book. Or out of a horror story. You cannot have a partnership with somebody who's holding a gun to your head. No, not a regulator. Holy cow, it's so so unbelievable that they can talk like that. I'm sorry, but the other candidates, generally when they speak about policy, sound like illiterates. They don't know what they're talking about. They make it up on the fly. I sit there embarrassing. It's embarrassment. Mm-hmm. You can tell that they're making it up. Oh, well, you know, we got waiting lists. we got to have home, more home care. Invest in oh, home care. Invest. Invest. As like a businessman, invest. Right. We need extra mechanisms so we can get rid of candidates we don't like. Well, what's wrong with democracy the way it is? Yeah. Look, the, the problem is we're trying to get rid of candidates like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't need extra mechanisms. We just need the voter to make the right choices, and that's the problem. But let's... Carry on. We got another uh, all candidates to be here to hear now. Did you want to introduce it, Robert? No, no, Bob. Actually, this is um, part of your show. So this one's. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) But but I mean, I think you're going to come out of this with some comments. Well, this is is going to take us into the bottom of the hour and into the second half. But anyways, here we have London West coming up with another uh, five-minute little interlude here, and they discuss the issue of high-speed rail. And what I found interesting was how. Uh, you know, the, lib- the, the NDP talks labor, the, the, the PCs talk business, but Al Gretzky talks about the people and governing and the greater principle. Very interesting. You know, there's one thing about high-speed rail, and I have been mm-hmm. on a, a high-speed rail before in, in Japan, the Shinkansen, and here you have a high-speed rail going from a, a city of about 10 million people going to another city in Kyoto of another about 5 million people. That's the kind of population that it takes to have high-speed rail. Here they want high-speed rail for London, 300,000 po- population. Yeah. That doesn't even make a small neighborhood in some of the s- places in the no. world that have high-speed rails, like in France or in England or in Japan. So, so for them, no. this is part of the big lie thing. High-speed rail to link London with Toronto's population of 3 million. Well, Absolutely go. ridiculous. Okay, let's take the break. We'll be back after this. We are ticking right along here. We've got another question. This one from Mike Donaghy at Metro News. Is high-speed rail good value for money, or could the money be better spent in another way? Okay, we're starting this time with Nick Steinberg from the Liberal Party. Question about high-speed rail. 
Well, thanks very much. Obviously, I uh, just mentioned this in my last answer. So very excited about high-speed rail. I think connecting um, London with Kitchener, Waterloo, and Toronto will open things up a great deal. One of the biggest issues that I see with my clients um, is the ability to get to jobs. The jobs are out there. They have the skills to fill them. We have to be able to connect the two. I also think that in London specifically with the burgeoning uh, tech sector, um, some of the amazing startup companies in London, I think being able to connect those companies with companies in Kitchener-Waterloo in Toronto on a very quick um, basis, I, I think that's totally, uh, totally invaluable. And um, the, the feasibility study studies have been done, um, and the estimate is that by the time um, 2025 rolls around and we've recouped um, from ticket sales and those kind of things, um, it will cost about $500 million over the course of those 10 years. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Okay, thanks, Nick. Uh, Jeff Bennett for the PCs. Is high-speed rail good value for money? It's not good value for money right now. It's unrealistic. We don't have the money for it. We can't afford it. I like the idea like anybody else. I go down to Toronto for work, and it's, it's a pain getting down there. I would love to envision myself riding a bullet train and being there in 40 minutes. But realistically, the province of Ontario cannot afford it right now. The Liberals have put that out there as a goodie to try and attract votes. It's not realistic. It's going to bankrupt the province. It's just one of these things that they're throwing out there, but they have no plan for putting it in place. And it's, and it's not something that, that can happen, especially in the next five years. We need to get the province back on track financially. And unfortunately, high-speed rail just isn't part of it. My kids would love to go to Disney World twice a year also, but if the money isn't there, I have to say to my children, I'm sorry guys, I'd love to do it too. We can't afford it right now. And that's all. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Nick, you were called out there, your party's plan uh, in terms of grabbing votes. Do you want to respond quickly to that? Well, I, I think it's very simple. I mean, you can say, oh, we can't afford to do it right now, but if we don't make those investments right now, then 10 years from now, we're going to be saying, why didn't we do this? Now we're losing out even more. Um, Ontario is at a disadvantage not being connected um, in a very high-speed manner. And I think we have to start it now so that we have that investment in place. Okay. Jeff, quick response. Ten years from now, we, uh, we could be bankrupt if we don't get the finances in order. Downtown Detroit has a people mover that nobody rides. It was built when Detroit was the most booming city in North America. And now it's just a vacant train in downtown Detroit. And that's the direction we're going in unless we get the finances in order in this province. Okay, moving along. Uh, Al Gretzky from the Freedom Party. You're going to get sick and tired of hearing this from me, but the first thing we have to do is get balanced books. We have to get rid of that deficit. We have to get rid of that debt. If high-speed rail was such a wonderful deal and it was going to solve all of our problems, trust me, there would be private investors out there lining up to put it in. There aren't any. We already have a rail system. And what are they doing? They're actually shutting stops down and shutting where they go. Is that an example of how much we need a system like that? No. The most important thing that we can do in Ontario right now, balance the books, get rid of the deficit, lower that debt, and everything else will fall into place. Get government out of the way. Thank you. Thank you, Al. And Peggy Sattler for the NDP. 
Well, thank you. I, you know, I, 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 I like the idea of high-speed rail, and I, I do agree that it is an important uh, long-term infrastructure goal for this community. But, uh, but I really wonder whether the Liberals thought it through before they threw it out here a couple of days before the uh, possible election. There are complex planning, financial, and coordination issues that would have to be addressed before anything could move forward. In particular, the feds have to be at the table. There are major implications for VIA and major cost implications. There was a similar project in the UK that cost $29 billion, and that's the, that's the entire budget that the Liberals have committed over the next 10 years for all transportation across the province, and that's far greater than, uh, than the couple of uh, billion dollars that, uh, that was talked about at the time. But there has to be a, a meaningful discussion with the city about municipal priorities, whether it's BRT, uh, uh, industrial land acquisition, high-speed rail, whatever, but, uh, but I think that it is uh, an important goal in the long term. Okay. Thank you, Peggy. Let's move along to our next All right, so be it. That's it. So it is written. So it shall be done. I like that. Who said that? St. Paul? Somebody, some saying. No, no, that was uh, Ewell Brenner. Ten Commandments. You know, Yule Brenner was brilliant in The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, he was, well, he was, there, he was good in that. that yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's a great movie. Yeah. This is what's good about Jim. Say the Ten Commandments, you know. Forget it, right? But, you know, bang, I love The Magnificent Seven. Right. Yule right? Brenner, The Magnificent Seven, that's the kind of stuff he comes up with, right? So I say, I love the movie, I love the candidate. It's that kind of mainstream, middle-brow sort of association that you make. I think that's great. We got to tap the common man. He peeled common man. Right? We got to tap into that. Tap into that. Look, if Mary Magdalene flip-flopped when she saw the light, then fine. Jim Walcott flip-flopped on the issue of abortion. I also want to say that I loved Yule Brenner and the Magnificent Seven. Okay? Thanks. Mr. Walcott, Look, you can't just blurt out that you love Yul Brenner and the Magnificent Seven. It means nothing to anyone, okay? Wait a minute, wait a minute. You said the Yul Brenner thing worked. I, I gave Yul Brenner as an example. I mean, you're, you're, it was about an idea. It was about a uh, populist thinking. That's all. Uh, Yul Brenner and the Magnificent Seven, it doesn't mean anything to anyone, okay? You can't just stand up there and start talking about Yul Brenner in a campaign in 1997. So what if, what if I tie the Yul Brenner thing into the campaign somehow? Like, Yul Brenner's courageous fight against cancer inspired me in this election fight. What do you mean tie it in? I mean, I have to think clearly about this, okay? We're out there talking to people about jobs, we're talking to people about welfare, and you're talking to them about Yul Brenner. He's not even a Canadian. Okay, uh, so Raymond Burr, Ironside, and his struggle. And people associate him with a wheelchair the whole time, so that's a struggle. Nobody knows Raymond Burr in a wheelchair. I mean, nobody even remembers that show. I don't even... In Perry Mason, he wasn't in a wheelchair. Everybody remembers Ironside. You can tie Ironside into this campaign. Lauren Green. I, I don't care. But, uh, wh whoever. Lauren Green? Yeah. We don't even know how he died. He could have fallen off a horse. He could have died instantly. Right? There may have been no struggle at all. Christopher Reeve fell off a horse. Yes. Is still in a struggle. He's not a Canadian. Uh, what? He played uh, Superman. So, um, uh, who was the woman? Uh, Margot Kidder. Lois Lane. And you're going to tie Margot Kidder into this... Uh... Well, yeah, that's what you want, isn't it? Forget about Margot Kidder, Christopher Reeves, forget about Raymond Burr. We're running Jim Walcott, okay? We're not running Yul Brenner. All right? Okay? All right. Okay, and we're going back out, right? Yep. Right. Are you going to wear that tie? Yeah. Don't eat soup with a the tie, then. <laughs>
Okay. Get soup on the tie. We don't have a tie for today. Well, well, here, Oliver. All right. All right. <laughs> it's just, it's too real to be unreal. <laughs> those kind of conversations, that's almost how the elections seem to be run, Robert. I'm sure those conversations go on all the time, oh, the back rooms of the liberals uh, and the PCs. Amazingly. Be. <laughs> but the way they pointed out the associative thinking and the populist thinking and how there's yeah. just no connection to any kind of reality in terms of when politicians are trying to appeal to the public. And it's interesting, you know, anyone listening to the radio talk shows in London recently on the subject of this election might be shocked by how much Freedom Party has become the talk of the town, pardon the pun. On Sun TV, broadcast from coast to coast, and all the radio stations, every, everywhere around. But anyone reading the free press might find themselves wondering how a local newspaper could so blatantly ignore such a high-profile local event, such as Freedom Party's candidates in this election. It's on talk radio, signs are everywhere, but for the free press, it's all about the Liberals, Conservative, NDP, and of all things, the Green Party. Well, I think people need to know something about the Green Party that they might not know. Uh, the Green Party doesn't currently have a candidate in London West unless they get a new one by 2 p.m. this afternoon because their last one resigned, citing the fact that that party isn't trying to win elections, which is true. But there's a reason that you're seeing the Green Party get coverage and, and not Freedom Party. As a matter of electoral record, Green Party was once in the control of two guys named Jim Harris and Greg Vezina. You're laughing already, Robert. It's because I know the story. Yeah. Who were both ex-PCs trying to use the Green Party strictly as an electoral strategy to split the vote on the left, although the party appears to be able to split the vote on the right as well. You've heard of strategic voting? Well, this is strategic party registration. Back in the 90s, Freedom Party got together with Vezina, Harris, and all of the other alternative parties in a joint lawsuit slash civil suit against the uh, Ontario Elections Commission, led by Vezina, to try and force Elections Ontario to treat officially registered political parties equally, particularly with respect to the leaders' debate. Didn't win that one, of course. And I remember after one of those meetings at the Commission, Robert, you and I left one afternoon and somehow ended up joining Greg and Jim for a beer and coffee on a sidewalk cafe with mm -hmm. none other than Mordecai Richler sitting there in a cafe. You remember that I afternoon? I remember, yes. Yeah. But I digress. <laughs> Uh, believe it or not, on September 6, 2003, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever issued a media release with the heading, Greens and the PC plan to split the left further, an open letter and warning to Mr. McGinty and Hampton. In describing how they were using the Greens to do this, McKeever wrote, quote, By temporarily lending the Greens undeserved legitimacy through PC-friendly media, the Greens will draw votes almost entirely from the Liberals and NDP. I'm talking about reporting, while trying not to giggle or crack a smile, the views of the Greens on actual issues, end quote. And that's the whole purpose of it. Meanwhile, back in election 2014, I just heard again from mischief maker Greg Vezina by, uh, by email, his latest crusade being to get the political party, quote, none of the above put on the ballot. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, Greg. Wow, that's, that's, really? that's what it's all about. So don't expect to see any coverage of, of Freedom Party in Isn't the pages of the free press. I'm oh, sorry to interrupt, Bob. Yeah. Isn't that what the Green Party is? <laughs> <laughs> yes. None of the above party. Yeah. But, you know, its editors aren't even trying to maintain any kind of status as member of the fourth estate. I think it's all a, a part of this strategy. In any case, up next, on this side of the bumper, our last of the all of the four all-candidates exchanges, this time from the riding of Elgin, Middlesex, London. While on the other side of the bumper, we will hear once again from our good friend from the UK who's been watching our election over here, uh, and that's Simon Reardon, and you've heard his voice before. 
on a previous broadcast of Just Right, and what you'll hear him say in his few minutes allotted will teach us all more about what's really going on in this election than anything Robert, I, or any of the other candidates you've heard could possibly be able to say during the election. So let's listen in. Uh, opening remarks first, I'm going to call on the incumbent member for Elgin Middlesex London, Jeff Urich, for the Progressive Conservative. Jeff, welcome to the program, and Thanks let's hear from you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, media. Thanks very much for allowing us to be here to discuss the issues. I'm Jeff Urich. I am the uh, uh, incumbent MPP for Elgin Middlesex London. I'm the PC candidate. I'm a pharmacist, co-owner of Urich Pharmacy. I'm a community volunteer, but more importantly, I'm uh, married to my wife, Jen, and, and I'm father to my beautiful daughter, Maggie. And whether I was in my pharmacy volunteering or as an MPP, I was very grassroots in my approach. I listened. Although in opposition and not involved in key government decisions, I represented everyone's issues in our riding and brought them to the floor of the legislature. I even hand-delivered letters to the ministers in order to ensure better success. My staff at my constituency office often took care of the clients as they came in and made sure their needs were met. I would like to continue as a representative of this riding and also as a strong advocate for the people of Elgin, Middlesex, London. What I did hear, though, over the past few years, that people are tired of taxes. Jeff, people I'll have to stop you there. Your 60 seconds goes rather rapidly, and sure that's yes. Thank you. <laughs> You can see exactly how quickly 60 seconds uh, can expire. Uh, we'll turn now to the Liberal candidate for Elgin Middlesex London. Serge Lavoie is the first time, uh, I believe, in local politics here. Serge, welcome to the podium. Yeah, thank you very much. You're, you're right, first time. I'll start by saying I'm a dad of three daughters and three granddaughters, happily married to Debbie, a book editor. I've been in this community for 14 years, but for 35 years I've been doing economic development work in various capacities around Canada. And I'm going to start by saying that you know, we're all going to have access to tons of binders full of information, facts, and numbers. But I think this campaign boils down to something much more fundamental. And it's what attracted me to uh, becoming the candidate for the Liberals. I think it's all about vision and tone. I think the vision is all about reinvesting in our communities, in our people, in our infrastructure, in our industries. And then the tone is all about being positive not blaming sectors of society for problems, but by coming together and finding solutions that will build the economy we're looking for. I think that's what we're going to be talking about, not only in this hour, but in the coming month ahead. Serge, I'll have Thank to you. jump in and say that's your 60 seconds, Thank too. You. Let's move now to the NDP candidate for Elgin Middlesex London. Kathy Cornish has been with us on this podium once before. Welcome back. Thank you, Bob. Hello to the media. My name is Kathy Cornish. You may remember me from the 2011 provincial election when we doubled our NDP vote results. Once again, I'm running to be your N new Democrat MPP here in Elgin, Middlesex, London, and in the communities just like ours across the province. People are deciding it's time for new leadership. It's time for a government that stands up for middle class families. I will work with Andrea Horvath and the Ontario NDP team to protect your tax dollars, invest in your priorities, create jobs, and make life more affordable. New Democrats have a plan. We will create and protect local jobs by rewarding job creators with targeted tax credits, cutting small business taxes, uh, getting job-killing hydro rates under control. 
We will make life more affordable for your families by finding efficiencies in the hydro system and passing the savings back to you. Kathy, there's your 60 seconds. Thank you very much and have a, thank you. Let's move now to another uh, returning face to the Elgin Middlesex London pro uh, political stage. Running for the uh, Green Party is John Fisher. John, welcome back. Yes, this is my uh, sixth time actually at Three Federal and uh, I'm glad to be back and welcome everyone to the program. Uh, this is really why I am still a Green. I'm quoting from an email received during the last uh, time out. I'm one of those who has not voted all my life and I am 40 years old. For some reason, the Green Party has caught my attention. I watch you on the debate and I feel I really need a change. I would like to assign. My husband is open for the Conservatives and has a big sign in our front yard. I would like a green sign. For the very first time in my life, I will vote. I will vote for my girls and for my grandchildren's future. And I would just like to say uh, the Greens have uh, social and uh, we have uh, social and financial problems and the Greens are thinking a little bit outside the box with down-to-earth uh, solutions. Thanks. Thank you, John. Actually, 54 seconds. Thanks for being under the wire. Gives me a couple of seconds to introduce the Freedom Party candidate for Elgin Middlesex, London, Claire Maloney. Claire, welcome to our program and uh, it's your turn now. Thank you, Bob, and uh, well, uh, thank you for the people of Elgin Middlesex, London. Um, I'm Claire Maloney, and for those of you who may only know me through the London Free Press, I am not a girl. I'm a man. I was born a man. I'll die a man, and I was a man in between all those dates. Um, I got involved with the Freedom Party because I think it's the only party that is serious about eradicating debt. We've had uh, three, 40 years of NDP, conservative and liberal rule, and they have left a huge debt for our children and our grandchildren to take care of. Um, I was a councillor for the Township of Malahide for three years. Uh, right now I'm the uh, Deputy Grand Knight for in the Our Lady of Sorrows Parish at Elmer, Ontario. I have uh, two grown children who both live in Toronto. Uh, I successfully opened a business, business with my ex-wife, Bella Boutique in Elmer, and now that we have two shops in London. I've worked for Canada Post as a letter carrier for 36 years, so I do know a lot of people and I talk to them all, all the time to know what their needs are. Uh, I hope that you will uh, think about me in the future and the and Claire, the party. Claire, I'm sorry, I'll jump in and say your time is up uh, too. That's okay. Good morning. It's another beautiful day. Uh, the sun is warm already. It's not quite eight o'clock. I was listening to the Andrew Lawton show, a Canadian London, Ontario uh, talk show host who had a candidate's debate for one of the ridings, as they call them, one of the constituencies in the upcoming provincial elections in Ontario and what most of the candidates were saying was that this must be done we must do this we must deliver that we must um, spend this money or save this money or create this many jobs or it is the, f the prime purpose of government to create jobs, I think one of them said. Well, you know, they love talking about the economy, these 
uh, aspiring politicians, um, which is an absurdity. It's like trying to tune the economy, trying to change the economy using the government is a bit like trying to accelerate a car by turning the dial on the speedometer. Um, uh, an economy is a statistical item. An economy is just a way of describing the sum total of human activity in a society. Um, to talk about having a better economy, <laughs> to talk about manipulating the economy, to talk about creating the circumstances that lead to jobs, rewarding job creators. Well done, Fido! Anyway, um, job creators, people don't create jobs, they create products. And if uh, that product requires a workforce to produce it, a human workforce, then you will employ human beings and hey presto, just by accident you will have created jobs. Um, reward the job creators. Who the hell do you think you are? I mean, manipulating the economy, changing the conditions, the economy is the sum total of human action. If you manipulate the economy, you're manipulating humans. The only way governments can manipulate humans is coercion. If you coerce humans, you are violating them. You do not have the right, either as a private citizen or as a government employee, to do either of those things. You can't violate people. Wow, that's a pretty hard act to follow, isn't it, Robert? Simon <laughs> has a way of uh, cutting through the grease. Yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, it's clear that a significant number of Ontario voters are in chronic fear of another round of Liberal government, and they have every reason to be, to be in fear. There are a significant number of voters who will vote Liberal, and a lot of them liberals, that is, are voting liberal because they're in chronic fear of a Tim Hudak progressive conservative government. And here I sit in chronic fear of either of them, <laughs> wondering what to do as these two fight it out, always voting for the lesser of a given number of evils. That fear always leads them from the frying pan into the fire. It's the same thinking and the same voting pattern that has put us where we are today. And it has to be said, principled voters are in short supply, and that's why principled, trustable politicians are also in such short supply. Remember when Dick Field told us that story about his local PCMPP, and he always wondered why, after even though he supported him, he never voted conservatively? Why don't you listen to the people who support you, he asked, and the PCMPP told him outright, it's because conservatives will vote for me no matter what I do. So I have to appeal to the non-conservatives for votes, and that's what they do. <laughs> and the conservatives just keep voting for them faithfully. Heard a classic example of this from some fellow in London West. Said he, he loved Freedom Party, but he's going to vote PC. Get rid of it. So afraid of the liberals, right? And, you know, that's not even the right thing to do. And Because otherwise he thinks he's wasting his vote. 
And I don't know why he thinks a PC candidate will be a winner. I mean, his riding hasn't seen a PC candidate as long as memory serves, and yet PCs in the riding faithfully and losingly vote PC without ever considering their continual losing vote a wasted one. It's funny how they only apply that to us, right, to yeah. the smaller parties, which leads me to the inescapable psychological conclusion that the wasted vote argument, like the fringe argument, is at, the, is, is at its root just an insult. You know, it's just an insult. That's all it is. People throw away their votes in so many ways it's hard to count. But, you know, it's it's just amazing. You can throw your way a vote, vote away by not voting when you know there's a choice, by voting against but punishing yourself after you vote for a party that's just the same, voting for someone you know who's misleading you because you like the message, voting for or against any party when you don't even know what the party stands for, wanting to make your vote count, which makes sense only if you vote for the winning candidate and no other, because otherwise your vote doesn't count in determining the winner. All the losing Ali Chabar voters in the last London West by-election apparently made their votes count more by not voting for the losing candidate Al Gretzky, <laughs> right? <laughs> Using this kind of reasoning, if you live in London West and didn't vote for Peggy Sattler last by-election, you threw your vote away because it didn't count. It's that simple, isn't it? Voting strategically, it's always a bad strategy. Voting for a single policy, supporting a party that's unacceptable to you in every way except one, that's just terrible. Believing that votes belong to a particular candidate or party. You know, that's the main symptom of that is the splitting the vote talk. No such thing. Not voting because you believe they're all the same once they get elected. Well, that's true of all the socialist parties because socialism is the same as socialism. <laughs> it's, it's not because of the system. It's because of their philosophy in common. Try a different political flavor next time if you want something different. And, of course, by voting on blind trust, just because you like a single thing you heard or didn't like, or because some, so-and-so looks nice or dresses nicely. Haven't you heard all of these? Just amazing. So, you know, when it comes down to that, oh, and there's also voting for wolves in sheep's clothing, which is the Liberals and NDP are voting for sheep's and wolves' clothing. <laughs> the PCs, they promise to be tough, but they never are. And so you can see the whole problem. When you vote that way, you're creating a moral injustice. You're rewarding... The, the people who didn't earn your vote, and you're punishing the people who earned your vote by voting for the former instead of the latter. And it doesn't matter which party you support. This principle holds true of all the parties. So in conclusion, I just have one thing to say. Here's a better voting strategy. If you don't know who to vote for or why, then don't vote. You're gambling not with only your own life, but with that of others. And you don't have to be an encyclopedia about any political option before you vote, which is why trust is a necessary part of the picture. But don't let it be a blind trust. Here's an idea. Vote for what you believe in and what you support. Never vote for the lesser of a given number of evils, because whichever of the evils that you vote for, you may get. More or lesser. <laughs> you know? And with that, we now have to depart, more or less, until our return next week. So join us again then. And we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, stay right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Everyone at work thinks I'm crazy because I come to work every day wearing a spacesuit. But you dress the job you want, not the job you have.